And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, again, most people familiar with uh, St. Thomas More uh, because of the outstanding film in which Paul Schofield played uh, Thomas More in Man for All Seasons or the Robert Bolt play. Um, and of course, he's a Catholic saint. So obviously, we under he's part of that constellation of models that we have in the communion of saints. He's also one of the most extraordinary figures in the history of Western thought and action, because for all of his uh, brilliance, intellectual brilliance, he was also incredibly practical in the world of, well, political affairs. With me right now to talk about uh, St. Thomas More and to really celebrate the publication of the Yale University Press Essential Works of Thomas More is Dr. Uh, Jerry Wegemer, professor of English at the University of Dallas, where he directs the Center for Thomas More Studies. He is co-editor of the Essential Works of Thomas More. And Professor Wegemer, great to talk with you. Thanks. Great to be with you on your program, Al. You know, you may not remember this, but we actually talked probably 20 years ago now um, oh, I remember well. Okay, okay. And I was thinking about that um, because I didn't realize you were engaged in such a remarkable uh, project, research project. How, how Have you been working on this all those years? Well, 30 years, actually. 30 years? Wow. Yes, my first course I taught on Thomas More was in uh, 1990. 1990, and I had to Xerox most everything from old books, and it was very hard to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, tell tell me about um, the the size, the the sheer size of this project. Well, in this new publication is a thousand five hundred and sixty pages, and we have put in this more as twenty books. Uh, his, 106 of his letters, 300 of his poems, uh, over 100 illustrations and artworks related to his life, as well as the prayers and spiritual guidebooks he wrote at various points of his life. We've also put in here the earliest biographical accounts. We commissioned new maps of the uh, of the London of Thomas More and of his Chelsea estate. So we tried to get all the material in one book that we need to know the whole of Moore's life. <laughs> this is it's great. Uh, you say you mentioned that when you started this project, there was a real deficit uh, uh, of you know available uh, works uh, on more works of more. Um, why why is that? Uh, I mean, Catholics have this great esteem for him. Uh, is he not well esteemed among uh, intellectual historians? Well, that's a very complex historical question, because we have the complete works of every other Renaissance author already in the 19th century. Uh, And when we pitched this book to Yale University Press, we explained that in order to quote more, we have to use the equivalent of the first folio of Shakespeare. Hmm. Uh, Shakespeare's first folio was published 12 years after his his 
death. And then every 15 years, you had a new edition, better notes, uh, up-to-date punctuation, spelling, uh, a commentary tradition. And we haven't had that with Thomas More. Huh. It, had, it was done in the United States between 1958 and 1997 that we got the first critical edition in 23 books. But it was still unusable for the common reader, mm-hmm. even for the graduate students. Yeah. Why? I mean, he he wasn't a member of a religious order, so right. I mean, so he didn't have a, a community um, that could could contextualize him. Um, what other reasons would he not have the kind of the, the proper interest? Did he? <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Is it because Western thought was in many ways influenced by Protestantism? Well, it's not an accident that he's been embraced in the United States very strongly, because when you read closely his early works, he clearly has the understanding that human beings are meant to be Mm self-governing. He introduces in those early works the whole vocabulary of the ancient uh, Roman Republic, Uh, He has the understanding of human beings who are free. He never uses the word subjects, for instance, in his literary works. Hmm. He calls the English the people of England. He calls them citizens of England. Interesting. And he has a lot of poems about the dangers of monarchy uh, in terms of uh, acquiring too much power, the propensity to pride, and the corrupting effect of wealth that's not really been earned so so he is uh so th- that would make him within uh, anglican letters uh not an especially uh respected figure for those first uh, few centuries well we do have a history of socrates being uh killed in athens Right. We're talking too much about virtue, and we had Cicero, who was murdered in Rome, and his hands and uh, uh, nailed and head nailed to the rostrum, from which he spoke about republican self-government in a time where uh, benevolent dictatorship uh, took over Rome. Uh, so th- this is a complex historical and political. And certainly, in terms of Moore's Catholic faith, his his understanding of a self-governing people has deep roots in in Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You teach a course uh, called Thomas More, Renaissance and Reformation, Uh, two categories which are, you know, we use to kind of get a handle on a particular period of time in uh, Western thought. Um, what was Moore's understanding of Renaissance and Reformation? Now, you couldn't have one without the other. Okay. That is, both Moore and the, the whole group of European Renaissance figures at that time, humanists they were called, saw that there needed to be a return to the sources. So, birth. And it was to rebirth to go back to the Bible. It was to go back to the church fathers. Mm-hmm. More, more after law school, learned Greek, so he could read 
the Greek and Latin church fathers and the Greek uh, classical thinkers in the original text. Mm. So he could have a direct access to them. And he clearly understood that we all need Reformation all the time, yeah. individuals and corporate. So he and the European Renaissance uh, humanist circle that he was part of were trying to go back to uh, better education, understanding that laws are meant to be a help to society, and that the church-state distinction should be honored. So on Moore's tomb uh, in Canterbury uh, is the first quote from the first, uh, I'm sorry, from the first phrase of the Magna Carta, that the English church shall be free. Hmm. Moore and these European humanists understood clearly that the church should not be involved in politics, Mm -hmm. and politics should not be controlling the church. Because the great irony here is that he dies as a result of King Henry, who tries to embody both the supreme head of the church and the supreme head of the state. Uh, it's it's, it's a, really a, a, almost an archetypical battle uh, that we have here. Uh, King Henry becomes what Thomas More feared. Is that right? He does. And uh, it, it's, this is why we wanted to put all of his writings in one book. Um, one of his earliest poems is a poem written to Henry at 17 years old when he becomes king. <laughs> and Henry's ambition at 17 was to be an imperial ruler uh, invading France uh, and, of course, uh, having control of, of Ireland. And in this poem, Moore warns Henry about being an Achilles, hmm. uh, dragging the the body of Hector behind his chariot. Wow. And he warns him explicitly that too much power corrupts even the best of men. Now, Moore, this is a part of the drama of Moore's life and part of the great interest of Moore's life, uh, that Moore does represent truly a life in full, a person who has a balance between family, friends, professional, civic, and the spiritual dimensions of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he is a loyal friend to Henry to the end, and he tries to appeal to the best in Henry, even on the scaffold. And again, this is where people need to look at the whole of his life, yeah. at every phase, and see what he is actually, what he actually did and said. How, what was his age? Was he older or younger than Henry? Older? He was older. Yeah. Yes. Now, how much older than Henry? Uh, roughly 15 years. Okay. So when Henry becomes, at 17 then, uh, more is 32 when he writes to Henry. Um, so Moore had, a, a, he, he saw himself then in relationship to this young uh, monarch, he saw himself as someone that could uh, help Henry, um, you know, navigate the responsibilities and the temptations of uh, imperial life, monarchical life. That's right, and, and and he's keenly aware, both through the Bible and through classical 
thought, the danger of tyranny. Okay. One, for instance, surprise that uh, Steve Smith and I, Steve is the co-editor of this, he's mm-hmm. been my partner for 20 years in, in work. Uh, his first published essay was an essay about tyranny and what do you possibly do when you are in a country, a, a republic that's been taken over by a tyrant? Good heavens. Now, well, the hard. answer is most instructive that he gives, that you have to be a tested leader with extraordinary prudence and courage like Ulysses. Ulysses, of course, Odysseus, the wiliest and uh, <laughs> right. most famous uh, figure of the classical world. And you have to understand what are the possibilities and what's good for the whole. And it may mean you'd have to suffer through a tyrant for a long time until you get the right opportunity to change things. Wow. Wow. Uh, looking at the life of St. Thomas More, uh it's not hard to see uh, the fingers of providence here. Uh, my guest is Professor Gerard Wegemer. He and uh, Stephen Smith have uh, edited The Essential Works of Thomas More, published by Yale University Press. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Professor Gerard Wegemer. He is uh, co-editor of The Essential Works of Thomas More, this is, there's no volume like this. Uh, 20 uh, of Moore's books, 106 of his letters, 300 of his poems, a reconstruction of his trial, over 100 illustrations, uh, artwork uh, related to his life and writings. Um, there's prayers and spiritual guidebooks, uh, four Socratic dialogues. Uh, it, it really, it's easy to say there's nothing comparable that is out there. Uh it took uh, over 30 years uh, to bring this work together, and we're talking about uh, St. Thomas More, why he is such a revered figure, and also why um, he was uh, a major Renaissance figure who did not have a critical edition of his works uh, completed uh, by 19th century and 20th century scholarship. What, what of, when More writes early on, uh, about tyranny. This is his first essay? Yes. Does he... It's a, yeah, go ahead, please. It's it's a playful exercise, playful on the surface, but quite serious in the choice of the topic, Yeah, that he includes with his first uh, trans, book of translations he does with Erasmus. And he challenges Erasmus to a Greek translating contest <laughs> to do this book. And as part of the contest, he says, let's both write a declamation, a speech, responding to uh, uh, the situation of a tyrant being in a city. And they're they're uh, fascinating to read and compare. Hmm. Now, I should also point out to your listeners, uh, there's also a supporting website for this book. Yeah. It's open to anyone. It's, it's theessentialmore.org. And it has study guides for Moore's works and uh, recreations of many of the... Uh, the uh, maps and also uh, bibliographies for for the critical studies of Moore's works. Very good. Essentialmore.org. Correct. We were talking about his first essay uh, that uh, he writes, and again, in competition with Erasmus. Uh, 
His most influential book was The History of King Richard III. Um, that wasn't even published in his lifetime, though. Uh, That's correct. I, it, was, it was too revealing, and Moore decided to take a more playful, thought-provoking approach in creating the utopia. Mm. So he writes two versions of the history of Richard III, and this is, of course, what Shakespeare studied very closely early in his life. Shakespeare's first four plays are based on that history hmm. and expand the issues on that. Um, but it is the perennial problem of tyranny. Every corporation faces this. Every political situation faces too much power in someone's hands mm -hmm. where there's no possibility of collaborative thinking. Now, people also rarely know that Thomas More was the first person to write a speech defending free speech for Parliament. Hmm. When he was the Speaker of the House, uh, chosen as the Speaker of the House in 1523, uh, his first act was to petition the King for the right for everyone in that house to speak their mind clearly in order to have the kind of debate needed to bring out all the aspects of the issue. This just shows how deeply and how carefully Moore prepared himself and thought about his profession. Now, one other important dimension, I believe, of understanding Moore's place is why St. John Paul II made him the patron of statesmen in the year 2000. Now, the technical term that St. John Paul used was the patron of gubernatores. Uh, gubernator means pilot, and uh, political leader is the captain of a ship, mm -hmm. and ships okay. always face storms. And so how do you actually prepare yourself so you can save your ship and uh, prevent mutinies and all the complex issues that any captain has to do. And this is where Moore's life is very instructive, how he prepared himself. He didn't join Henry's court until he was 40 and until he tested himself if he had what it took to actually be a captain of that kind of a ship. Wow. And in between uh, law school and uh, uh, accepting a position in King's Court, he studied all of the classics, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, biblical, uh, British classics, uh, about the issue of rulership, justice. And that was a morning study. He started every day with prayer and study throughout his life. Hmm. He, he, is, um, he has a rich uh, inner life. He has a beautifully balanced uh, external life. Um, did he see his, I guess, given he starts out writing this essay on tyranny, given his uh, testing of himself before he joins Henry's court, and then, of course, his death in martyrdom, um, did he see his life as uh, a coherent narrative that <laughs> God was uh, unfolding? How, do, how did he see? Because he focuses in on the passion of Christ, of course, right at the end of his life uh does he see does he see himself as living out some kind of um uh, experiment in living he certainly has an unshakable trust in providence but he also realizes that life unfolds in the most unexpected ways 
And this is another reason that his life is particularly instructive for anyone looking for a very active life in a changing culture. Moore does live through one of the most tumultuous periods in history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable that his family remembers seeing him angry only twice. This is not just temperament. Yeah. Uh, he trains himself. And he also, uh, again, studies what it is that the circumstances are requiring of him. And uh, here again, one of the surprises, one of the discoveries in putting together all of these works together, in that same work, and then throughout his works until the tower, Moore refers to or alludes to that biblical statement that God loves a cheerful giver. Hmm. That cheer, good cheer, is part of faith, and it's part of charity. Interesting. Now, he, he, he has a naturally... Uh, good sense of humor. But we all know that humor could be used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. And and he has a statement that, that humor should be the sauce and not the meat of a conversation. <laughs> Very good. And here again, you see the, the depth of his reflection, but also the strength of his self-discipline in uh, seeing the work as it unfolds and um, responding to it in ways that he normally wouldn't. So he knows it's dangerous to, to join the king's court. Right. He's the highest paid lawyer in London. He's writing books that are classics throughout Europe, uh, and he's asked to join the king's court. Um, this is not according to his natural bent or his deepest interests, but he does see a certain duty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you uh, mentioned that he's the first to use the English word integrity. That's right. Now, it, of course, the word uh, exists in Latin, mm -hmm. uh, but he uses it at key points, and he uh, uses it quite often in Latin as well, in his Latin works. But to live a life of integrity does require a great deal of reflection and preparation, because integrity means consistency of word, thought, and deed. And in some ways, the other element that Moore points out very early in his works is that a person has to be able and has to work on developing a calm of soul so that the reason can actually guide you. Hmm. Okay. This is something he cultivated mm -hmm. all his life. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and he's fully aware of fallen human nature and of his own fallen human nature. He, for example, knows himself to be a very fearful man by temperament. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and he sees this fear so operative in his own life, and you can see this in the letters that, that uh, are in the, this collection, that he, he says, I scandalized myself by how fearful I was before I uh, took the plunge and um, refused and was imprisoned. Yeah. And in prison, he uh, strengthened his own resistance to his own fear. 
Yeah, but, this is something, it, it's a, in a sense, everyone needs, I mean, everyone experiences themselves, yes. but it's also very helpful to know that even in someone as gifted as the Thomas More, it was not easy. Right. It was the struggle, the drama of his life. And, and how does he strengthen himself uh, when he's in prison there? How does he you know, confront the fears that he had, and now he's in the situation he may well have feared? But how does he strengthen himself in that? He writes two of his most important and extraordinarily uh, uh, artful works. And uh, one of them is called The Dialogue of Comfort Against Tribulation. Comfort comes from the Latin word comforte, with courage. Mm-hmm. And tribulation is, uh, a tribulum is a threshing sledge. <laughs> so this is not ordinary suffering. This is suffering by being hit by a threshing sledge. Mm-hmm. And it's a dialogue between a young man who's petrified with fear and an old man who's gone through trials all his life and is on his deathbed. And through three days of conversation, the old fellow helps the young fellow acquire the, the strategy and the perspective needed to face his own fears. And then the second work, the very last work, written in the, hastily in the last weeks of his life, once he realized that uh, he would be executed, mm. is The Sadness of Christ. And this is a line-by-line commentary when Christ himself um, experiences his whole body rebelling against his conscience in facing the suffering that is his that is his path. That he sweats blood, he he is prone on the ground, and more more reflects on these phrase by phrase in this whole scene. It's a these are extraordinary works. But they're also written for others, but they're also written for himself. Professor Wagner, hold there. Uh, Can you stay with me another segment? Sure. Very good. My guest is uh, Professor Gerard Wegemer. He and Stephen Smith have uh, cooperated and co-edited the essential works of Thomas More. Uh, It's a real landmark uh, in the history of ideas. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Dr. Jerry Wegemer. He's professor of English at the University of Dallas, where he directs the Center for Thomas More Studies. He is co-editor, along with Stephen Smith, of The Essential Works of Thomas More, and it's an outstanding volume published by Yale University Press. You can learn more at EssentialMore.org, EssentialMore.org. We'll have that linked at our site as well. Jerry, I keep coming back to this. It's been running through my mind throughout the interview, and that is, given Thomas More's outstanding commitment to self-government, and uh, Chesterton calls him a champion of liberty, how is it that he is, I think, ignored by uh, the founding fathers of the United States? I wouldn't say ignored by the founding okay. fathers. In fact, the utopia is referred to in the Federalist Papers by Hamilton. Okay. And Moore's Utopia is a case study, uh, very provocative, meant to be, uh, that forces you to think about what elements would be involved in actually, truly, a people ruling themselves. He's dealing with all the issues that our founding fathers um, actually grappled with. Uh, Utopia, for instance, when Moore speaks in his 
own character, he's sometimes quoting word for word Cicero. And hmm. Cicero is a key character that every American right. founder would have known. Right, right. And Moore is also introducing Cicero's whole vocabulary of self-government in the Latin version of his literary works. This is both in Richard III, it's in his Latin poetry, it's in his utopia. So, of course, this is cultural dynamite. Moore was a man early on who writes that he has a special hatred for tyranny. He has a special love for the people. One other element that we've included in this volume are all the earliest biographies, biographical accounts of Moore. And one of the most surprising and revealing is a play written by five London playwrights, including Shakespeare, called Sir Thomas More. <laughs> and that play presents More as the best friend the poor ever had. Hmm. Really? And it celebrates him. It's a completely positive play, and that's why it doesn't get past Queen Elizabeth's censors, in which Moore is on the side of the whole city. The mayor says how proud they are to have Moore as a citizen. You see Moore's home where he has members of every element of the society there. Moore was known as a leading citizen. And this is the term that he uses in his poetry and in Utopia. The head of every city of Utopia is called a princeps or a leading citizen. And this is a concept that Cicero develops in his, especially his later writings, that the role of a leader is to look to the good of the whole city and not one part. Hmm. So if that's your ideal, that laws are just to bring about justice for everyone, not for a privileged class, not for... And again, this is going to be one of the reasons that so many people leave Europe to come to America, where you can actually have a chance, not based on inheritance, but based on merit and your own work, and also that you'd have a voice in government. The other element that is crucial here for more is education. Yes. And uh, we, we'd have to talk, we have to talk a little bit about that. Because sure. He's one of the most famous ones in the history of education. His daughters had were among the most educated in Europe. He had to hire tutors from Oxford and abroad so that his daughters could have the same education he had in Oxford because an educated citizenry is necessary for a self-governing people, women and men. Yeah. And Moore saw that clearly. The more we talk, you know, he becomes a champion of liberty, champion of self-government, a champion of lifelong education, and again, for women as well. His daughters are respected. He's a man of cheer and humor. He's a great modern saint, and he deals with suffering. So he doesn't ignore it like so many uh, modern heroes. Do you expect that we're going to see a renewal, a revival, or a new appreciation of uh, Thomas More? In the future, near future. For sure. In fact, we are. Uh, there's been an explosion of scholarship in the last 20 years about Moore. And this is just bringing to the fore Chesterton's surprising prediction in 1929 that Moore, he said in 1929, Moore is more important at this moment than any moment since he, his death even perhaps the moment of his dying, but he's not quite so important as he will be in about 100 years' time. <laughs> wow. That's great. Yeah, 20, 29 is not far off. That's right. That's right. Wow. And 2035 will be the 500th anniversary of his martyrdom. Hmm. 
and between and again, uh, Saint John Paul II was a statesman himself. Uh, he was a student of history and philosophy, and his seeing the war's importance as precisely the type of person that has a life of integrity. He points out mm-hmm. uh, his integrity. He points out him as a hero of conscience. He points him out, he quotes Cicero, that uh, by obeying the laws we shall be free. Uh, he, he sees in Moore the type of human being that, that is needed, yeah. uh, educated, professional, uh, civically aware and involved, and in that way, he does give a, a very uh, full example of the elements one would need to develop early on in order to be the captain of a ship, especially yes. a ship that faces many storms. That's right, right. Uh, let me ask you about some comparisons. Um, St. Thomas More is St. Thomas More. Uh, his friend, Erasmus, is contemporary, also brilliant. Uh What's the difference between the two men? Their similarity is their commitment to a vibrant renewal of Christianity and the classical tradition. And uh, Erasmus, at Moore's encouragement and the encouragement of more circle of friends when Erasmus visits. Erasmus visits, I believe, six times England. And uh, he himself then masters Greek. Uh, he goes on to be the editor of a, a Greek version of the New Testament. He does many commentaries. He edits most of the church fathers uh, so that they're accessible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they share fully this educational vision of a true Christianity rooted in love of the person and knowledge of Christ, but also uh, one fully educated in terms of the secular professions of life. Okay. So they they have an understanding that the lordship of Christ uh, extends beyond uh, a clerical vocation, but that affects uh, all areas of a man woman's life. That's correct. In fact, in these early biographies, the first uh, biography that's in the collection and is actually done is by Erasmus. And Erasmus presents Moore as a model for his own time. Interesting. A a person who does integrate uh, all of the dimensions, uh, family, friends, professional, civic, spiritual, uh, in a way that is ordered towards justice uh, under God. Let me ask you about another figure, although this is uh, oh, well over 100 years removed, and that is um, John Milton, who's also looked upon in you know the English uh, literary tradition as a champion of free speech, free press. Um, how, does he, how does his thinking compare to that of Moore, who wrote uh, at least 130 years before? That would be a study in itself. Okay. And uh, Moore tries to prevent civil war. Mm-hmm. He he experiences it himself as a young man. He knows the dangers throughout his life. Um, and rather than cause a civil war, which he could have done as the most popular leader of London, mm-hmm. he took a very different path than Milton. 
Milton, as you know, uh, was going was the secretary for uh, his Cromwell. He uh, defended the, the execution of the king. Um, he fought on the side of the Civil War and had a very different view of what Christianity meant. Right, right. So th- that's a study yet to be done. Okay. Uh, it would be extraordinarily fruitful. Yeah. But more, looking 100 years ago, knowing the problems uh, of the of basically a warrior society hmm. uh, because henry and the the nobles of england at that time and for some generations their ideal was the warrior king gotcha. uh, more realized that peace should be the uh, he did believe in peace among christian nations uh, he he thought he writes that it's a scandal that Christian princes are fighting against Christian princes. Hmm. And he also points out that uh, a strength in Parliament and a king with less power uh, is the way to go. And uh, that's that's generally not appreciated. Hmm. Uh, he saw the same dangers of other writers. He sees the same... He, he for instance, reads the same books as Machiavelli. Huh. as Hobbes, uh, as Locke. But he comes up with it. He honors the importance of private property. Uh, he defends private property. Uh, but he has a, a balance in terms of the institutions that would be needed for a true self-governing people and for a justice that's going to do uh, to do well for all. Uh, it's why I think it's very significant that in this play by five London playwrights, uh, written at a time when they themselves fear civil war. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth is on her deathbed. She's made no provision for the next successor. Uh, everyone's thinking about bloodshed in England again. Uh, and what do the five London playwrights come up with? Uh, a man of true justice, thinking about the whole city, who can use humor and the law uh, to protect everyone. We've only got about a minute left, and I realize I failed to ask a question that I'm sure... Some people are think, asking themselves, his wife. Um, tell me about his marriage to uh, uh, his wife and what it was like. Erasmus uh, admires how well they get along, although they're of different temperaments. Mm-hmm. And uh, she does not understand. Alice does not understand Moore's decision at the end. She strongly opposes it. Um, it does not make sense to her. Um, and that's also part of the, the drama of the life that's very instructive. Um, it, it's probably the hardest, it, for sure, it was the hardest part of his final decisions. It says He says it keeps him awake at night. Hmm. Uh, he keeps thinking about what's going to happen to his family. Um, but uh, sometimes duty requires the, some supreme sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Jerry, thank you so much uh, for being with me today, but for this remarkable uh, accomplishment of uh, the last 30 years, the essential works of Thomas More. I hope it gets uh, you know all the attention it deserves, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you, Al. Professor uh, Jerry Wegemer and Stephen W. Smith have given us the essential works of Thomas More, published by Yale University Press. Uh, I mean, it's Again, it's huge, and it's, it's so robust in its presentation of Thomas More. 
that I think for a long time, uh, this is going to be the, uh, you know, this is the touchstone. If you want to know about Thomas More in a full way, uh, this, it contains all 20 of his books, 106 of his letters, uh, 300 of his poems. They reconstruct the trial, uh, illustrations and art related to him, prayers, uh, spiritual guidebooks, dialogues that he wrote. And we actually, in our conversation today, only scratched the surface of this remarkable man's life. I'm Al Cresta.